Well, our study this morning is going to focus on Genesis chapter 48. To remind us of where we were in chapter 47, Jacob and his clan, just before chapter 47, had arrived in Egypt. And in chapter 47, we see Joseph going to Pharaoh, saying, My father and my brothers and all of their things and people are here. And he took five brothers, not mentioned which one, with him to Pharaoh. And uh, Pharaoh has some questions, or at least one, and he first says, What's your occupation? Joseph had previously coached them in, in what they should answer, and he said, We and our fathers are shepherds. And we've come to sojourn in Egypt, and we're foreigners. We're not immigrants. We're just here because uh, there's no pasture in Canaan anymore. The famine is severe. We, we, would, we couldn't continue. Please let us, your servants, live in Goshen. And Pharaoh then turns his attention to Joseph. And he says, Egypt's under your control. Settle your family in the best land, in Goshen. Let them, let them be there. And by the way, if you know of some good men, let them take charge of my livestock. So Pharaoh recognizes that here's an opportunity to be taking advantage of their skills and abilities. Don't forget earlier in chapter 46, 47, yeah, 46, we heard that, well, by the way, when you say you're shepherds, you're going to be loathed by the Egyptians. So there weren't Egyptians running around wanting to be shepherds, at least not uh, with any expectation of a high position in their society. So then Joseph presents his father Jacob to Pharaoh, and Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And it's very fitting, God's promise to him, and through his ancestors was, who blesses you, I will bless, and who... Uh, harms you, I will harm. And so here he is beginning by blessing Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's conversation that's recorded at least with Jacob goes down the line of, how old are you? And Jacob says, well, my years are few and unpleasant. I'm not yet as old as my father's. And again, and it was 130 years. And Jacob then again blessed Pharaoh and they departed. So Joseph, the chapter tells us, made provision, provided food, and took care of his family. And then Joseph also, the chapter tells us, administered the food to all of Egypt. And he would trade the food for money until the money ran out. And then when the money ran out, he traded the food for livestock. And when the livestock was all run out, he traded the food for property and for them to act as slaves or servants to Pharaoh. And he didn't keep this for himself. All of these goods went into Pharaoh's possession. And he established a procedure then on how they would live going forward that Pharaoh would provide the initial seed, but from then on everything they grew, 20% went to Pharaoh and 80% then they would retain to take care of them, their families, and also to make seed for the next crop. And there is a bit of a contrast though. Jacob's people were in Goshen and there God prospered them and they acquired property. Everybody else is losing theirs, but they are acquiring property. And then we see Jacob near his end and he extracts a promise from Joseph. He says, I want to be buried in my fathers, with my fathers in the burying ground that they have arranged. 
that Abraham, we know, initially purchased. And it's the intimate kind of a promise, put your hand under my thigh and make me this promise. It's a, it's a, it raises the, raises the type of the promise to make it, make it that way. And so he also asks him for an oath. He really wants to be buried back in the land of Canaan where uh, Abraham and Isaac and other ancestors are already buried. And so that's where we leave it in chapter 47, and today we're going to look at chapter 48. And I'd like to begin by having us read together uh, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 48. And so I'm looking for a volunteer to get us started here. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Lutz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you of a make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. For as for me, when I came to from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there were there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. And that is Bethlehem. Okay. So <clears throat> Joseph is told, he's, he's already been there, he's made the promise. <coughs> Excuse me. And they apparently have parted company, but he's told, your, your father's ill, meaning this is a deathbed or near deathbed situations, situation. So Joseph takes his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him and as they're to see Jacob and in verse 2 they tell Jacob look Joseph your son has come to you and so he Israel gathers his strength and sets up in bed you can almost see this you can almost see this scene can't you here's the man he's sick he's he's becoming very weak uh, he's approaching death and Took, take some determination in his own uh, spirit, in his own um, body to put together the strength to get set up in bed and, and come and greet Joseph and have him come into the room along with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob says to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Lutz of Canaan and blessed me. And... Um, when he says God Almighty, that's El Shaddai, that El is God, Shaddai is the Almighty or the most powerful. And he's talking about this appearance to him in this place of Lutz 
And in verse 4, Jacob says, He said to me, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will give your descendants this land as an everlasting possession. Let's go over to Genesis 28 and take a look at that. This is the famous Jacob's Ladder dream that he's referring to. And indeed, it was at Lutz that it occurred. And so let's look at, let's look at Genesis 28, 12 through 22. Genesis 28, 12 through 22. If you've got that for us, you can, you can bless us by reading it. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall go spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it, and he called the name of the place Bethel. But the name of the city was Lutz at the, at the first. Then Jacob uh, made a vow saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and it will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come in, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth to you. So this is a very significant encounter for Jacob. And, you know, I don't, I, I didn't live with Jacob and his family, but I, I would find it uh, surprising if this wasn't a familiar account to the family from Jacob to his children and, and so on. But here's Jacob and he's pointing to this as he, as he looks at this time of transition and what's going on. Here I am on my sickbed and he's remembering the promise of God to make him fruitful and numerous and that the land of Canaan is the promised land promised by God directly to Jacob but also to his forefathers Abraham and Isaac and so this is the time that he's looking back to and remembering the promise and in verse 5 he goes on and says now your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came here they're mine Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. What did he just tell Joseph? Well, he's claiming he what he's saying here is similar to that at least. He's saying when it comes to the time of the inheritance, they are going to be treated as my first and second born. They're going to receive a gift, uh, a, a portion of the inheritance, and it comes about in, uh, is repeated again when it comes up in the terms of doling out the property when they go back and take Canaan. 
And so what it amounts to is Rachel's offspring, Benjamin and Joseph, together essentially receive three portions because one goes to Benjamin and then Ephraim gets a portion as well as Manasseh in behalf of Joseph. So Joseph essentially received then as a result through his offspring a double portion when it comes time for inheritance. Um, and so he, he's elevating them to the tribal status in a way. And when we get into chapter 49 next time, um, I'm still trying to work some of that out. Um, I haven't, I'm having to work at picking up and learning these things, but we will see that um, when we look at each of these tribes, they indeed each get a portion and um, the Levites don't when we get to the parting out the land. Uh, and there's some other adjustments that happen over time. One of those we will see play out when we get to the book of Revelation with regard to the tribe of Dan. But here we see Joseph, or, uh, Jacob elevating these two to receive portions. Now he says, he clarifies in verse 6, these two were born before I came, and they are mine, but any additional children that come are yours, and they shall be called by the names of their brothers in the inheritance. And so this is also what we see happen when you get to the time of proportioning out the land in Canaan when, they, when the exodus occurs, um, they actually, <clears throat> the proportions go out to Ephraim and Manasseh. And so the brothers, their brothers then fall under those two uh, as the names that receive the inheritance and what their tribes are known by. And um, we'll talk about that a couple more times before we get done this morning. <clears throat> so he, he elevates these two as important to him and they're going to receive that equal portion in verse 7 he says now as for me in coming from Padan Rachel died to my grief in Canaan while we're traveling we were still some distance from Ephrath which is the ancient name but he renamed it later on it would be named Bethlehem and we buried her on the way so He's bringing this up in verse 7 that Rachel, to his sorrow, died before they're all the way back into the land of Canaan around their normal uh, stomping ground, so to speak. And why do you think Jacob brings this up? Or why might you think Jacob's bringing this up? Well, Jacob... Well, Bethlehem will be part of the promised land, absolutely. She's actually buried, though, in... in uh, yeah, she's not... Well, she's not buried. That's, that's what he's bringing up. Rachel, his first wife, is not buried with the rest of the family. But he's thinking of his own burial, and he wishes to be. And so he's, he's mentioning this sorrowful death, and... I'd have to go back and look now because my brain is not pulling it back out. But I'm pretty sure she died in Canaan, but not yet at 
at the Bethlehem. Am I right on that? Did I forget something? Anybody got it in the top of your head? I hadn't thought about whether she was actually in the promised land or not. But here's Jacob. He's thinking about burial and death, and he's thinking about Joseph's mother and the sorrow that went with with her departure. And so he's he's off in that kind of thought process uh, here at the end of, of chapter verse seven. With that, let's let's read the the rest of the chapter, beginning with verse eight. And if you don't want to read all that, you could stop. But I'd appreciate if we could get a volunteer or two to read that for us. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, "Who are these?" They are the sons God has given me here. Joseph said to his father, Then Israel said, Bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them and Israel's knees from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and pulled it on Ephraim's head. Though he was the younger and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And may they increase greatly upon the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than me, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day, that day and said, In your name, Will Israel pronounce this blessing? May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. 
Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And you as one who is over your brothers, I give the ridge of land I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. All right. <clears throat> Thank you. So it's interesting that if you can you know, picture what's going on here, here's, here's Israel, Jacob, laying back in bed, and he's actually just been talking about Joseph's two sons born before he got there, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he says, oh, who's this here? <laughs> That's who he's just been talking about. And so when he says, who are these? Then um, Joseph says, well, these are my sons. God has given me them here in Egypt, in essence. And so Jacob says, well, bring them here so that I can bless them. In verse 10, we hear that Israel's eyes are very dim uh, from age. He's effectively blind, so he, they were there, but he couldn't, he just could tell there were people there, couldn't recognize them. And so Joseph brings them close, and Jacob kissed them and embraced them. And Jacob says to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again. And not only now am I seeing your face, but I let me see both you and your children. And so Jacob is recognizing just how kind God has been in his later years that he could be reunited with Joseph and with Joseph's family. And so then Joseph takes the boys from Jacob's knees and he bowed with his face to the ground. He's showing honor to his father and making it clear that, that he is not above Jacob and uh, he's looking forward to the blessing that Joseph, that Jacob had just uh, mentioned. And so Joseph takes both of these boys and he puts Ephraim on Joseph's right. Now you can imagine, here's Joseph, he can't see. So, or here's Jacob and he can't see. So Joseph is trying to arrange this correctly. And he puts Ephraim on uh, his, Joseph's own right hand, which is Jacob's left hand. And then he puts Manasseh, who's the older one, on his own left hand, which makes Jacob's right hand. So he's lined this all up for Jacob to give a blessing in the traditional way. And so Jacob begins blessing Joseph, and he says these words, The God of Abraham and Isaac walked before me. The God of who Abraham and Isaac walked before the God who has been my shepherd all my life through today, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And so he's calling on the God, on, on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and himself, Jacob, to bless the lads. May my name live on in them. And the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they become a great multitude in the midst of the earth. So he's pronouncing this blessing that is very much like the blessing that was passed on to him when at the point of deception, but he received the blessing of the older, the blessing of the promise of God, the many nations uh, done in their name as well, and he, he puts all of this out there. Now, in verse 17, and, and I'll tell you right now, we're going to come back and talk about that blessing 
some more at the end. But he's, he's passing on to them the promise. And in verse 17, Joseph saw that as Jacob was doing this, his hands were crossed. Because instead of putting his right hand on Manasseh, he put his right hand on Ephraim. And he put his left hand on Manasseh. And it displeased him. Why would he be displeased? What's that? It's the wrong order. Well, wrong order. Wrong, wrong, wrong place because the right hand's going to be the primary blessing, right? And which one's older? Manasseh. And so, no, no, Dad, you got it wrong. Manasseh's the older one. And um, he, he was concerned that the blessings would get to the right place. And who knows what else is there? We, I mean, the, the scriptures don't tell us specifically why he was pleased but firstborns can have a an anticipated place in the life of the family and its future and so here's the firstborn hopes placed on the firstborn often and uh, so Joseph's watching this and going no this is this is backwards and uh, so he actually physically grabbed his father's hands of course you can imagine that would seem natural his father's virtually blind no, 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 here, let me help. You, you can't see, you got it wrong, kind of a thing. Uh, and he worked to move the hand from, Eph, from Ephraim, the right hand, and to move it over to Manasseh so that the older would receive the blessing from the right hand. And um, he, he also uh, said in verse 18, he said, not so, my father, for this one's the firstborn. You've got it wrong. You're, you're doing this backwards. Put your right hand on his head. And Jacob uh, refused. And he, he looked at Joseph and said, I know. I know what I'm doing. Uh, I know. Manasseh, he, he says, doesn't use the word Manasseh, but what he's referring to Manasseh, he's going to become a people and be great but his younger brother will be greater and his descendants will become a multitude of nations. I want to plant a little bit of a seed for a discussion a little bit later. How did Jacob know this? Well, the Lord told him so. Yeah, there's, there's something prophetic going on here <laughs> and we ought not miss that. Jacob is very much aware of what's going to happen with God's plans. And we don't know if how God communicated this to Jacob. Um, was it some unrecorded vision or dream or were there some, you know, occasionally God, I'm going to use the word spoke, and I don't mean that necessarily like he sat down and had a conversation but back what we read about Jacob's ladder. Here's God pronouncing things to Jacob in this dream that are true and correct and intended to be understood and followed and expected. And so somehow God had transferred this information to Jacob and he was very much aware of it. If we were to look forward, we would see that yes, Manasseh was given land and a place in the parceling of land when they make the exodus trip but so too was Ephraim 
And Ephraim becomes so dominant in the northern tribes that his name is often substituted for the whole northern kingdom. They just refer to in Ephraim, meaning the land that Ephraim was in, including the rest of the tribes that were in the northern part, the ten tribes. So it's a name both for his, the, the people that are born in his lineage, but it also gets extended to other brothers and our other tribe members. As we look at it, it also became a name for a geographical area. That didn't happen with Manasseh. And so Ephraim indeed will be by far the greater of the two. Let's go on. In verse 20, now I'll stop. Any questions or comments so far? Don't want to just run right on by any thoughts anybody has. Is there anything to the fact that Joseph was living in Egypt and that's why Jacob would have gone to his sons instead of to Joseph himself? I mean, were, were Ephraim and Manasseh then out as he claimed them? Were they out in Goshen with their grandfather rather than in Egypt with Joseph? Or is there anything that supports that? Well, I don't know why. Um, Jacob delineated that these two who were born while I was gone, I'm going to raise them up as equal with uh, the rest of my direct descendants in terms of inheritance. But future children will not be raised up that way in Joseph's line. Um, I, I don't know why that would be what Jacob chose to do or what God directed Jacob to do would probably be a better way of saying it because clearly God is looking and telling Joseph or telling Jacob that these two are going to be going to be tribes, if you will, in the lineage of Jacob. Um, but I, I don't know what significance, because they're still going to be living in Joseph's house. They're still going to be Joseph's children in the sense of they're not going to move out of Joseph's house to be with Jacob. I don't believe they're going to stay uh, in whatever living situation they were in it's just that when it comes to inheritance they're brought up as equals that make sense uh, that's that's the way I understand it and and what I see there um, hopefully that I, I believe that to be correct um, any, any other comments questions so in when we look down at verse 20 we see that he blessed them that day Jacob did saying, but you, Israel, will pronounce blessing, saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. In other words, this would become a saying. They were going to be prospered. They were going to be looked at as truly blessed by Israel and that their blessing would be one to pursue. And so as a result, in verse 20, it tells us, therefore, Ephraim was before, or if you want to say it another way, above Manasseh. And then in verse 21, uh, Jacob becomes personal again with Joseph about what's coming. Behold, I'm about to die. But God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your father. So Jacob is making it clear that while he knows he's going to die, the end of his life is going to come in Egypt. Uh, he's telling Joseph that, but God is going to take you and your descendants 
back to the land of your fathers, which of course means the promised land of Canaan. In verse 22, we get to that additional portion that comes to Joseph's offspring. I give you a one portion more than your brothers. And he does that through bringing up Ephraim and Manasseh as ones who will inherit in, in the 12 tribes. And, and then we get to an, an interesting statement here. Uh, he says, I give you uh, and I, one portion more than your brothers, and the specific portion he's thinking about here that he's giving directly to Joseph is that I took from the land of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Do you, uh, do you recall when Jacob got out his sword and his bow and took land from the Amorite? It's not something that's recorded anywhere in Scripture. Um, there was some ground purchased uh, when they first came back to Canaan that would be in the Amorite area, but that was a purchase. So this honestly is something we don't have any, any real background to put together to find out what in the world are we talking about that I'm aware of. Does anybody know of something I'm not aware of about something Joseph did to actually through power, physical power, took, took some land from the Amorite? Well, I don't think so. So what, what I want to do now is take another look at this passage that we just went through. I mean, here's the, we, we covered the what's going on piece, but we need to back up and recognize something. And that is that Jacob is here and he is making prophetic statements. He's talking about with accuracy what will come and with specifics beyond anything we've been told about through the promises of God so far. Ephraim and Manasseh have not been mentioned before. And out of this prophetic time that Joseph is or that Jacob is having here with Joseph, we see some really important things said. Um, there, it, 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 it is most noticeable um, when we see him spark, start speaking in verse 15. But before we get to that, I want to go back up um, to what Jacob said in verse 11. Because if we recognize that <coughs> Jacob is in a prophetic moment, the words he's speaking have absolute significance beyond just what's already been prophesied and said. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. And by itself, that's maybe not a huge statement, but in the context of what we're going to look at, I think that's a, a thing to look at and recognize how strongly Joseph is seeing the sovereignty of God in his life. He is pointing to God, the most mighty God, as the one who has been ordering the events leading up till now and 
uh, he is giving testimony as well as speaking prophetically about the role that God is playing in the world and specifically in Joseph's life. And let's go down now and take a look at verse 15 and try to really cement that in a little more. When he blessed Joseph, in verse 15 is where that starts, he said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. So he's making it clear this is the God that has come and been part of our family from the time that he called out Abraham and then and gave Abraham promises, transferred those promises to Isaac, transferred those promises to me, and continuing, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Now, we saw times as we've been through the life of Jacob where Jacob was very thoughtful about the communications that God gave him regarding the time he had a dream that he told his two wives about. It's time to go back to the promised land. God, has, God gave me that information in a dream recently. It's not a dream that's recorded, but it's one he testifies to. But the other dreams, interactions that Joseph, Jacob had were very important. We looked at Jacob's ladder, that dream. We also then see the time that he wrestled with God before he went to see Esau on the way back. And certainly those things were thoughtfully considered by Jacob as he lived his life. But this is an all-encompassing statement. The God who's been my shepherd all my life to this day, he leaves nothing out of God's shepherding his life. All my life, he's been shepherding. Now, Jacob wouldn't have heard it personally, but it started in the conflict in Rebekah's womb. They're fighting in there, and God effectively said to her, you have two nations in you. And by the way, I'm choosing the younger. And it continued throughout all of the events of Jacob's life. And I would imagine, based on his own words of consternation and frustration, there were many moments that he didn't recognize those moments as the shepherding of God. One example I would give to you is when he found out after the marriage to Leah that it was Leah and not Rachel. He didn't seem very happy at that moment and content with God shepherding. He was thinking about this goofy Laban that was playing tricks with him. And he felt very justified in leaving Laban secretly because of how Laban was treating him in their business dealings. And there were multiple times that you could tell he was concerned and he was working to figure out for himself how to move forward. The plan that he hatched to meet Esau came out of his own thoughts to at least some extent. He, he sat down and pondered, how am I going to handle this? And he comes up with the three gifts that, that Esau is going to meet in the road. And he ordered his procession to protect those that were more valuable to him. 
And so <clears throat> it would appear that Jacob saw life as quite a struggle. Now, he was, certainly was blessed, and he mentions that. He said, I showed up at Laban's house with a stick, and I'm leaving with herds and families and people and quite a group. So he recognized God had blessed him on the tail end. But here I want to, I don't know if it's quite fair to say Jacob the prophet, but he's certainly in speaking in a very prophetic mode with accuracy. And right at this moment, he is clearly extremely aware and testifying to the shepherding of God throughout all of his own personal history. Down to the detail. Been my shepherd all my life to this day. And then what does he think about as he is putting that together? What's his next thought in this moment where he's mindful and speaking in this semi or fully prophetic voice? In verse 16, the angel has, who has redeemed me from all evil. That is an interesting statement here at the end of Genesis. Not quite to the end, but getting close to the end. Because this is the first time we talk about God in the role of redeemer in words. God has been redeeming all of the way through the book of Genesis. He redeemed Adam and Eve, made them garments. Um, he redeemed Noah and saved a remnant there uh, on the flood. And there have been other times, but particularly when he calls out Abraham, he's redeeming Abraham, who almost certainly started out as a pagan. And so God has been redeeming but this is the first time in scripture we see redeemed me. And it's done by the angel. And you know, I was hoping that I would find some really wonderful thing looking back in my limited way at the Hebrew. I didn't find much. Um, there is uh, both the idea of a messenger and a theophonic angel, meaning representative or God in visible form. And I think that's what, it, by context, I would say that's what Jacob is saying here. God himself, sometimes actually even in front of me in some visible fashion, has redeemed me from all evil. I want to approach that little statement from a couple of ways. What do you mean, Jacob, all evil? Has evil been done to Jacob? Or so he's thought. Well, I would say so it has. I would say what Laban did was not honest, was dishonest, trickery. Um, that's probably the primary one. <laughs> you might get into an interesting conversation about what happened with his own mother and the trickery that he did because she was certainly the instigator. Um, there's a certain element of responsibility if you lead somebody else into doing something dishonest or evil. 
has Jacob done things that weren't in line with the standards you would expect a God-fearing person to live by for his code and standard? And I think you'd have to say yes. The trickery from when he deceived his mother. Laban would call him evil that somehow he managed to swindle me out of most of my livestock. When in reality, it was simply God blessing Jacob through the evil, evil deals that Laban had made. But, and I think when you say this statement, redeem me from all evil, I don't know exactly what was in Jacob's mind. It's not expressed here. But I think we have to say that there certainly were evil things done to Jacob. One very poignant one would be his own sons, save maybe Benjamin. We don't know about his role, but certainly the rest of them had come back to convince their dad that Joseph was dead and had instead had sold him, in, sold him into slavery. But you'd have to call that evil being done to you, wouldn't it? Come convince me my own son's dead so that I won't go looking for him and find out what evil you have done. But here he's talking about redemption. And I think we have to realize he's looking at his own evil too. He's been redeemed. The evil that others tried to do to him, God leveled the books. He doesn't get to reclaim those years. There's still ramifications. There's still results from the evil. But I think more importantly... I think Jacob gets to look at what God has done and said, in the eyes of God, I'm redeemed. I think as he's there in Egypt with Joseph, in this moment when he's hearing from God, the promise is still intact. These two young sons of Joseph, I don't know how young they were, these two sons of Joseph are actually going to share in your inheritance and in the promise in Canaan, the promised land that all of these three generations have been told are theirs, I think Jacob realizes, I'm still in the family of God. The evil that I have done along the way, the evil even that my family has done along the way, God is still keeping his promise and has redeemed us from the judgment that might have come upon us as a result. Questions, comments, thoughts? Yes, sir. Isn't this a good demonstration of his sovereign predestination, you know, God's yep. choosing and you mm -hmm. have fall in line? It's not understandable, but it's real. It's it's that, I think that's a, a very strong piece of it. Um, why did God pick these men? Because he did. He didn't tell us why Abraham would be his people. The only thing he really tells us about that is, I didn't pick them because they were great. I picked them because they were the least. I started with one man to build a nation. I had to call him out of his homeland had to tell him to leave his family. Why? So that God himself would receive the greatest glory. 
so that it would be clear to everybody this was God at work, not some man out of his own strength and power and personality that made it all happen. But other than that, we don't know why God picked this family. You know, the lessons that we learn, you know, take it We are blessed. And like Jacob, our blessings don't become come to us because we're so wonderful. Um, if we have our honest moments, we know that we are far, far from wonderful. We know who we would be, what kind of people we would be, apart from the grace of God at work in our lives to sanctify us. And yes, there's difficulty in this world. Doesn't mean that everything comes up roses, but certainly we are blessed as children of God. So, man, he re refers to the angel. Mm -hmm. Is he actually saying that that is God in a form, or because he's being redeemed, if he's recognizing that it's Jesus who's redeeming, saving? Well, I don't know if he's cognitively aware of Jesus the Christ of, G, of, of the son relationship he may, he may well be um, when we look back we look at some of these things and say this could be a Christophany meaning it was Jesus coming and representing or being God in this case but I, the one thing I would say is it's I don't he's not looking at it as I believe because of context an angel like an angel simply messenger the angel that appeared to Joseph for example Joseph the the uh, husband to be of Mary and an angel comes and tells Joseph don't worry I think that's right was that an angel but I mean there, there are angels that appear in the scriptures that are messengers there to do something the men that go to the men the angels that go to Sodom and rescue Lot, they're messengers. I don't think they're God themselves. I can't say I know that they're not, but I don't believe the context would support that. Here, with what he attributes to the angel, he's got to be looking at theophany, God himself. I mean, he's saying he is the active person, so I think clearly he means God. In, in this moment. And it, it would only thing that would make sense based on the context. Any other comments? It's interesting that this is the first time we see God's redemptive work voiced. We've seen it displayed all through the book of Genesis. But here it is voiced for the first time. The angel redeemed me. <clears throat> and 
that is in the context now of bless the lads. It's almost like a prayer now as well as a prophecy and may my name live in, on in them and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And so here is his blessing on them in the context of giving his testimony about who God has been and what God has done through his life. Testifying to God as his savior in the way that we would mean the word. And an interesting thing about being redeemed, you have to know you need redemption. Redeeming is taking care of the judgment or sin debt, however you want to say it, that's placed on you. It's that you have something to be redeemed of. It's a necessity. And I think Jacob has looked back through his life at this moment and said, yeah, I, I needed redemption. Just like any of us would in an, any honest moment. So, I found that very interesting to me. I don't know. It's the same level of interest on your part or not. Any questions or comments? I was wondering about Ephraim's pre the preference for Ephraim. Um, <laughs> so you were saying that becomes like the northern geographic part. Well, it, that becomes the shortcut name to the northern geographic part. Yes. They were, you know, it seems like that's rather odd that he would give him the preference when they were the ones that started the idolatrous. Yeah, I, I, I understand that particular. I mean, when, when we look at how Jacob's offspring in the time after they, well, even during the taking of Canaan and in their time after I mean God gives them all these promises it says if you will then I will but if you do this and I will do that um, in reading through Exodus recently and Numbers and some other places it's I don't know what there's an emotion that comes out of me when I read it and that is great sadness because no one's faithful there's there are no faithful people in this group as a whole. I mean, yeah, there's some bright spots. Um, and, and you quickly go to Joshua and Caleb and they're bright spots. And as you go down and look through the kings, there are bright spots. But they're bright spots. They're almost isolated times and or groups of people that even make an attempt at following God. Idolatry is rampant. Um... Next time we'll probably be talking about the tribe of Dan, but the tribe of Dan goes off on their own, and the first thing they do when they go off on their own is they create idols. I mean, they had trouble when they got to the promised land. Sorry, I'm getting off a little bit here, but they had trouble when they got to the promised land having enough faith to believe that God would give them the land. After the Red Sea... Mount Sinai, all of the things that happened leading up to that, they were just like, oh, there's no way this is going to happen. 
Once again, they complained God brought them out into the wilderness to die. And God said, well, fine, if that's the way you want to do it, all of you who are 40 and older will die. And so for 40 years, they tromps around the desert dying. And then God miraculously, it starts with Jericho. What person hasn't heard that account? It starts with Jericho, and that's way miraculous. And yet, as they move into the promised land, they don't do everything God says to do. They make treaties with people they're told specifically not to. They let people continue to live. God said, wipe them out. And those people cause them all kinds of troubles throughout all of history. I mean, it's just like, you know, where is the thing that lasts and lasts and lasts? And I think what's continually shown throughout all of history is that what lasts is when God creates the new heaven and the new earth. People on this world are just inclined to not go their own way, and we should just be so intent on being faithful and loyal to God and thankful that he chose to save us. Because it's just all of human history, if you say it the word the way I just said it, what I meant, human history is devastating sadness. Spiritual history, divine history, is grace, truth, and love for those that will respond, for the remnant, for the ones that he chooses. So, yeah, I mean, next time when we look at all of these, his blessings on all these children, <clears throat> it's kind of amazing where, where all that goes. Anything else? Well, I don't mean to leave that on a downer note, but we know who we would be apart from God, don't we? Let's pray. Father, we do know who we would be apart from what you've done in our lives and the grace you've shown us. Uh, Lord, we still live in these bodies and we have sinful tendencies and we know apart from you, we would follow those uh, to the max. Lord, we live in a world that is full of tension and it's full of tension because of man's desire to reject you, man's desire to worship himself and or other ideas that are contrary to you and it leads to violence and just foolish, vain, sinful attitudes and living. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for showing us the truth. Thank you for extending your grace to us. Thank you for Jacob and his life and the way that he gives testimony to you. May it ring true with us. And Lord, uh, let us be in the faithful remnant day by day, giving you glory and honor because you so richly deserve it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.